we abandon digital technologies just for entertainment and socialization, then we're missing a big piece of what it could be doing for education. The kids don't see it as a tool for education because they're never given the opportunity to use it for learning. So I really believe makerspaces need to embrace digital technologies. And that's the difference between makerspace and shop of the past. We're not focused on one technology. We're not focused on one tool or machine. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. And my name is Dr. Matthew Wurwood. This is the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast. On this show, we'll be talking about creativity topics and how they apply to the field of education. We'll be speaking with scholars, educators, and resident experts about their work, challenges they face, and digging deeper into new and varying perspectives of creativity. All with the goal to help fuel the more rich and informed discussion that provides teachers and parents with knowledge they can use at home or in the classroom. So let's begin. Welcome to the Fueling Creativity in Education podcast, and today we welcome Michael Mino, an education development specialist with over 25 years of experience working in K through 16 public and private education. He is the founder of numerous innovative student programs, including the IT Leadership Academy, the Connecticut Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, the Connecticut Student Innovation Expo, and the Center for 21st Century Skills at EdAdvance. And I do want to highlight, Michael was the first person to employ me when I migrated to the United States at the Center for 21st Century Skills at EdAdvance. He is currently serving as the Director of Career and Maker Education at Rancho Del Rey in Monterrey, Mexico, where he established a makerspace to serve severely underprivileged boys aged 5 to 16. He also works as a maker education consultant for public, private and non-profit schools and organizations in the US, Mexico and Africa. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Cindy. Really pleased to be here with you guys. Really looking forward to our discussion. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show because we, we love talking about the maker movement because it's so applicable to creativity. And you have such you know vast experience, particularly um, over the last few years working in the maker space movement. So what we wanted to ask you is we, we kind of see an opportunity, given your background, to talk a little bit about different perspectives um, of the maker movement, particularly in how it serves uh, different groups of students in society. But before we did that, we was wondering if you could just kind of provide your overall perspective of the maker movement. Specifically, why is it trending? And what is the relationship between a maker space and the school, the, the traditional curriculum? You've asked a couple of questions there. The reason it's trending, how, what its relationship is to the broader school community, and, you know, maker, maker spaces, maker experiences maker opportunities for kids and, and adults actually too now there are you know the plenty of adult maker spaces around the world literally um and they're in different places they're in formal education spaces like you know schools universities uh and then they're also in informal spaces like neighborhood community centers or neighborhood uh or just particularly dedicated neighborhood maker spaces and uh, and also run by informal organizations and museums i mean it's really a broad spectrum you know my experience with making goes you know literally back to when i was a kid my father was an airline mechanic and we always had tools and stuff around the house so i was always making stuff and then i did have my first certification was an, as an industrial arts teacher in uh, my first position was actually as a woodworking teacher at a high school in Massachusetts. And so that sort of, you know, that making has always been around. Um, and the work I do in Mexico, you know, I look at Mexico as a real maker culture, maker, you know, going back to the Aztecs and the Mayans. So 
So we could look way back, but in terms of the modern maker movement, starting with like Make Magazine, which came out sometime, I believe in the 2000s, I don't know, I had the first issue, uh, you know, cause I, had, I have a, a son uh, who's now also running a makerspace. Um, and uh, so it got, you know, kind of the modern era of making, I think comes after the demise of many of the industrial arts programs of the past, kind of a focus on vocational ed versus comprehensive high schools having technical programs. Many of those technical programs were shut down and a focus on STEM, uh, which has some elements of making in it, but uh, not exclusively, uh, I think kind of drove that, drove that hands-on, you know, focus and experience for kids out of, you know, more formal environments. And so I think the embrace of it, I think in some ways is a kind of, I guess you could say it's sort of a, a reaction to the digita digitization of everything, the experience of kids spending a lot of time on screens, uh, spending a lot of time with uh, you know, digital devices as opposed to making stuff, hands-on work, work, learning with their hands as some of your past guests have referred to. Uh, I think that's, you know, that's, I think, some of the, the, the impetus that's propelled making forward and making it as popular as it is now and continuing to be continuing to be an area of growth. So given your background working with students from various backgrounds and levels of socioeconomic status, I think there's an opportunity to look at the maker movement from different perspectives. So we'd really like for you to share the work that you've been doing with underserved or underrepresented backgrounds. In Mexico, I'm working. I'm working with an organization that serves. I mean, severely underprivileged, um, socioeconomically, you know, lowest socioeconomic class of, of citizens in the city of Monterrey, Mexico. And these are kids who come, uh, and it's predominantly it is boys program. Although we do have some girls who are staff, uh, children of staff on campus, and so they're also participating in the program. But the boys uh, come from literally living, some of them live in shacks made of recycled materials living adjacent to dumps. And their families make a living by scavenging for recycled materials in the dump. And literally it's a day-to-day -day existence. If they can make 200 pesos in a day, they have enough to buy food for that day. And sometimes they don't. And the boys have even spoken about going for a day or more than a day without food. So these are really severely underprivileged students versus some of the students I work with in uh, working with a project right now in an urban high, two urban high schools. And those kids are also, you know, from a lower socioeconomic, um, uh, underprivileged group of students, mostly from uh, Hispanic and African-American population, uh, from Dominican, Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. And uh, however, their, their lives are not as uh, destitute as the lives of some of the kids I work with in Mexico. So, you know, consider more, you know, they're not wealthy, but they're not, um, they're not living in shacks. They're living in decent housing. And, and most of them have phones and access to technology. And, uh, but still, in terms of educational opportunities, I think both groups suffer from opportunities, especially in the making field. Now, the kids we work with in Mexico, they're local school. So our kids go out. We're not a school or a residential home during the school year. And the kids go out to a local school. And then on our campus, we provide supplemental services like tutoring, math tutoring, reading, writing, uh, arts, drama, and then the makerspace. Um, so at the local school, they have no they have no computer lab. There's no there's a I think a limited arts program, maybe, but it's very limited. And I think I some ways see the same thing 
some urban high schools and other, you know, middle schools, elementary schools in the United States too, in, in urban areas where the focus is so much on, let's just try and get these kids to read, write, and do mathematics. And we don't have time in the schedule or we don't have the resources to do more than that. So that's the population. Uh, and then it, in my work in Mexico, it's sort of like, I, it's kind of like the ideal maker environment because I do have particular interests and focus in certain technologies and certain tools and machines and equipment, but I also have a lot of freedom for the, you know, kids can walk in one day and say, hey, I want to make a car or I want to make a rocket or, you know, they just walk in and say, I want to make one, one of the older boys said the other day, I want to make a cell phone. Now, obviously he could not make a cell phone, but he wanted to make a mock cell phone out of a wooden block. And so that was completely on his own, you know, his own initiative. So I was, sure, let's, you know, go ahead, let's do that. Um, <clears throat> so we have a lot of freedom. However, I think the thing I want to emphasize too is that I think makerspaces have their own domain of knowledge and focus. So yes, we can let kids come in and do things that are just kind of, you know, off the top of their heads or, or based on their passion or interest, but, or in, in, in formal education environments, especially in public schools in Massachusetts, we might be supporting the core curriculum through activities and resources and projects in the makerspace, but makerspaces have their own domain. Like, so digital electronics, for instance, uh, robotics, those are not areas that other people are dealing with in, in most schools. <clears throat> Just this past week, I was working in a urban high school and uh, I asked, we were doing an activity on solar energy. We're building you know, mock solar tracking panel system, uh, a model, not a mock. We're building a model solar panel tracking system. And um, I asked the kids, like, have you ever stripped a wire before? Have you ever done any programming? Have you worked with, you know, did you know the difference between analog and digital? And some of the bo boys in the class were seniors, actually boys and girls. So some of them were seniors, had no experience whatsoever in this field, you know, no experience with any of that, that technology, any of those components it was really it really struck me as kind of like i thought wow you know the boys i'm working with in mexico at six seven eight years old have more experience than these seniors here in the united states so i think that speaks to the power of you know the, the focus of what you can do in a makerspace and what you can bring in in terms of uh, learning opportunities i want to go back to two points that that you've made in in this discussion and you know you had reference about the increase in in digital technology and access to digital technology um and then you also spoke a little bit about stem and, and increasing our focus on certain certain types of of um you know education goals within the core curriculum and there's this element of kind of like what does that take away from you know, so th the more we're playing with digital devices, for example, and, and there's value to us interacting with digital technology, we're potentially spending less time making things. And, and I can I can relate to it with, with my uh, young children at home. I used to love playing with Legos, and I've got all the boxes of Legos down in my basement, but I didn't have to compete for on-demand television. I didn't have to compete to play all of these games on the iPad. So there's less time in the day for everyone, and so something has to give. That's in informal learning. But then in formal learning, we're starting to see, obviously, you know, a reduction opportunities to create and make there as well. So I'm just wondering, with, with, with your experience, is it easier to put together a makerspace in a formal learning environment 
or is it is it easy to put together a maker space in an informal learning environment? What are some of the things that you've you've kind of seen, and and what's that tension between what you're potentially taking away in each of those environments? Yeah, well, let me just comment on the digital piece first because I didn't mean to I don't mean to say that um, in a negative sense that's strictly looking at digital technology from a negative sense because I believe a makerspace should incorporate digital technology and one of my biggest I, Matt you may have heard me say this in our work together that um, if we abandon digital technologies just for entertainment and socialization then we're missing a big piece of what it could be doing for education the kids don't see it as a tool for education because they're never given the opportunity to use it for learning. So I really believe makerspaces need to embrace digital technologies. And that's the difference between makerspace and shop of the past. We're not focused on one technology. We're not focused on one tool or machine. So in Mexico, I do have a 3D printer. We do have digital robotics. We do have digital programming. We have a, t a number of different uh, platforms that we're doing digital program. We have robotic Lego sets that, as a matter of fact, were donated by Lego in Mexico. Um, so we have a whole bunch. So, and then, but we also have a couple of woodworking machines and we also have, um, you know, tools and paints and drawing tools. And lately we've been really into jigsaw puzzles that we got hooked on during the pandemic. And we're now working on a 6,000 piece jigsaw puzzle in the makerspace. So, you know, I, so I'm embracing both of those. And I think makerspaces have to be broadly uh, stocked like that. And, and it all depends on your budget, obviously. But then back to how you know the question of like formal versus informal well, in informal spaces it's much easier to just focus on the domains within the makerspace so we don't have to worry about supporting a language or ela project we don't have to worry about supporting a social studies project or a science project specific to a curriculum from that school or that grade level right, uh, which many makerspaces can do. And especially, you know, when you're talking about project-based learning, capstone projects or eighth in eighth grade or high school capstone projects, a makerspace can become a great resource for those sort of activities and those sort of experiences for students in schools. However, again, you know, I say the makerspace has its domain. And so if we want to deal with robotics or, you know, rockets or coding or gaming we also have a nintendo switch in our makerspace down in mexico so we have a really broad range of things and so we have our own areas that we can we can spend more time in that and the kids know now i think this is a, a you know major point i want to make a makerspace can become a catalyst for deeper academic learning and i have a perfect example an experience i had with the kids in mexico where i'm teaching them to do some coding within digital electronics. So we had some Arduinos, we had some digital components that they're coding like sounds or, and, and um, you know, motors and the different, different little exercises that they would do with these, with the set. And then they'd look at the code, but the code, the directions, if you're familiar with coding, you can have instructions within the code that could be in Spanish. So the instructions in the code was in Spanish, but the code is English right? The code is only using, the coding is not in Spanish, coding is English. So the kids are looking at it and I'm explain, explaining to them, like, here's why you need to learn English. Look, you can understand this code and go through it step line by line. And I had somebody there who was a coder who also spoke very fluent Spanish. So he was explaining to them. So at the end of that session, one of the boys said to me, he said, you know, we're going to be the smartest kids in the school. So nobody else is doing this. 
I thought, whoa, that's interesting. And I thought, well, that's really great because I'm, you know, my goal is to give you opportunities that no one else has. And the same, on the other hand, I was kind of sad thinking, like, this is such a small number of kids who are having this opportunity. So later that day, I get a text from their dorm parent. And she, she writes to me and she said, you've created monsters. She said, the boys are all in Duolingo learning English. They all want to learn English now so they can code. So I thought like, you know, bingo, that's exactly what we're hoping to inspire. And I think so that can be, you know, that, that same opportunity can happen in makerspaces in schools. And unfortunately, too many times makerspace is sort of divided out or separated out from academics in schools. And there's this idea that we have to teach academics in a certain way, especially in districts that are underperforming, uh, which happen to be urban districts or, you know, uh, social, lower socioeconomic dis districts or more diverse districts where students are underperforming. And then the focus is on let's, you know, which I agree, we need to increase their academic skills. The question is, how can we do that without drilling and killing it, which is what I've seen happening in many places. It's a real, you know, uh, real discouragement. And, and the other piece of that is success in the makerspace can lead to success in academic realm. So, I, I mean, I can, I've, on numerous occasions, not just once, but on numerous occasions with different student populations in both urban, suburban, private, and public, and in Mexico as well. Um, and so I'm talking across socioeconomic, across different uh, uh, communities. Um, I've had students who insisted they did, couldn't do what I was asking, asking them to do. I mean, literally, I had one student say to me, don't you know I'm stupid? I can't do that. And, and this is an activity I've done with many different populations from little kids to adults. And it involves uh, creating a little robot from a toothbrush, a vibrating motor, and a watch battery. I don't know if you've seen that before. Have you guys seen brush bots or um, you haven't seen them? Okay, well, it's one of these activities, Matt, you could do with like, I, you talked about your spaghetti towers, spaghetti and marshmallow towers. This is another one of those activities because it's very inexpensive. You get the head of a toothbrush, you get these little vibrating motors, which used to be used in pagers and you get a watch battery. And sometimes we add like pom-poms and uh, pipe cleaners and little, you know, googly eyes. And we say, okay, you're gonna create a robot. That's the challenge, create a robot. And there's a number of lessons to take away from this, but one is, is it really a robot? It's not because it doesn't have sensors, but it has characteristics of a robot. But first thing they have to do is create a circuit. Like, so, okay, given the tools, given the things you have, where's the circuit? What's gonna drive the robot? And literally I've had students and teachers actually, <laughs> I've had teachers say, you know, I can't figure this out. Like, what, how does this work? You know, what do you mean create a robot? What do you mean make something, make this move like a robot? And, uh, and so this one student in particular that I referenced, he was, he was insisting, like, I'm too stupid. I don't know how to do this. Don't you know I'm stupid? Literally, he said it a number of times. And then he actually got it. He actually did it. And he was so thrilled. He said, oh, you know, mister, can I, can I take a picture of this and send it to my mother? She's not going to believe I did this. And, and I was, like, stunned. I was, like, pretty stunned. I was thinking, like, holy cow, this kid in a period of 30 minutes went from I'm stupid to I can't believe I did this and I gotta show my mother. I mean, that really to me spoke to the power. And I've seen that numbers of times, not just once. That, you know, this is a recent example, but I've seen it numbers of times that kids experience success in the makerspace. And, you know, and, and that's that whole, you've talked a lot in previous episodes about can creativity be taught, right? 
and I think one, uh, and I, I can't remember who I heard reference this, but um, somebody said, you know, part of the path to becoming more creative and learning creativity is success, experiencing su success. And I think, Matthew, we've seen this in the programs we used to run together, where a student comes into our program in the first year, nah, they, you know, they struggle, they have a hard time, but they learn and they experience some success. And then they come back the second year and they're much more enthusiastic and they're much more successful as well. So I think success is part of the key to becoming more creative and becoming more technically um, competent. You know, building technical skills requires some success, encourages you to continue to try and build those skills. And I think the same, uh, it, you know, the same applies to creativity, learning creativity. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned about skills. You've mentioned skills a number of times. And what are the skills that you see students learn when they're in a makerspace? Because one of the things you mentioned was, you know, there's a, a specific skill set that students acquire when they're in a makerspace. So what are those things that they're trying to gain while they're in that space? Yeah, you know, there's so many. And I don't know if you recently, if you guys have seen the Google Future of Education report just released like two weeks ago, in the last two weeks, uh, it's part one. It's going to be a three-part report. And they talk about skills for the future, you know, so skills like and creativity, obviously, is one of them, collaboration and analytics, data analysis, and, you know, uh, analytical thinking. So those are kind of broad level skills um, that I don't think, you know, if we if we looked across the curriculum across the different domains of academics it's very hard to pinpoint one area that's focused on those skills so i think maker spaces can be those places where we apply those skills oh and learning to learn that was another skill and that really struck me you know I, I, uh, that was actually identified as a skill for the future learning to learn and relearn and i think i've seen that with the kids in mexico where that example i gave where okay i was teaching them to code and they realized they needed to learn English. So then they went off and figured out a way to learn English using Duolingo because we have access to some iPads. And so um, so I think learning to learn is one of those skills. So I think a makerspace can be a place where we, again, kind of like have its you know, ownership of the, some of those domains, right? And art, obviously, you know, we're talking about creativity, talking about, you know, expression of creativity. There are obviously some other domains other than academics that could also embrace these. But then there are skills like digital electronics. There are, you know, being able to manipulate tools, hand, hand tools in some cases. Um, one of the first things I did with the, with the boys in Mexico where we have like, we have a drill press, we have a, a belt sander, we have a bandsaw, I don't know if you know what those are, but they're different woodworking machines. And one of the little boys said to me, he's like, he looked at the machine, he said, those are for the adults, right? And these are small machines. These are not big industrial machines. These are what are called bench top machines. They're small. They're meant for like the home workshop. I said, no, you're going to use those too. And so, and he was like astounded. His mouth just dropped. So I designed a project where they had one operation on each of those machines. And it was very simple for the older boys. It was a little more complicated. They had to do more to, to complete the operation. But for the younger boys, it was very simple. It was like pull the handle to drill the hole push the board through, uh, you know, round the corner of a square, you know, on a sander. And I was right there with them. And each one of them did that. And they built a little confidence and skill on those machines. And, and we've talked about this, uh, Matthew and I previously, where um, 
you know, with the makerspace was designed or the concept of making originally when you, you know, first, I think some of the beginning of this idea was kids could come and pursue their own interests and passions and come into the makerspace like they do sometimes in Mexico and say, I want to make a car today. Okay. However, if they've never used any of the tools and the machines, and whether it's digital or analog or hand tool or machine tool, they don't really know the capacity of it. Like I actually, this past week, I had students say to me, I heard kids are using 3D printers in the makerspace. This was a senior who hadn't had an opportunity to take a course because only a year old, it's only a year old makerspace. So I said, yeah, they are. I said, hey, have you seen them? 3D printer? He said, no, I've never seen one. So I showed him, you know, he was happened to be in there for another class, showed him the 3D printer. So he, so he's never had a, used a 3D printer before. He doesn't know what it does, what it's capable of. How do you even get something from in your mind to the 3D printer? So there's a whole process that he has to learn. And that's what an introductory course can do. That's what we've designed an introductory course where we give them experiences on each of the sort of, I have that sort of informally in Mexico. So they have experiences in the different areas. They do a little activity, whether it's a little brush bot robot activity, more complex activity like 3D printing where they're learning a CAD program, then a 3D, then sending a, a file to 3D print. And then after they've done that, they can come, we can come, they can come back, walk in and say, okay, Today, I want to do this because I know I can do it on that machine or using this tool or that technique. So I think that's the rationale behind the structure that I think is needed in a makerspace and, you know, relate as, as it relates to curriculum and, uh, and skills. And, and I think just to, to tie it also back to the story, that the wonderful story you, set, you shared about the, the students at the ranch learning to code and then going back and using Duolingo, there is this opportunity to apply that your knowledge to make connections between, you know, what you're being told you have to learn and then being able to have a space to which you understand why it's important to learn it because now that knowledge has value. You need it. You need to apply it in order to solve a problem. And I think quite often in traditional education when we're kind of like, you know, constructing knowledge from the curriculum and and we know to the ways in which we are then kind of like tested on that knowledge it's not always applicational and i and i think that the makerspace piece and obviously as you kind of progress into higher education perhaps there's you know you start getting into why internships are, are important or independent studies are important but i think children of all ages need that opportunity to apply knowledge in the process of creating and making and problem solving. And I, and I think anyone who's listening and trying to work out why maker spaces is so important, I think that in some ways is, is a significant part of, of the benefit to maker spaces in, in any community, formal or informal learning environments. Right. And, and, you know, the thing we start talking about digital electronics, digital technologies, again, like, so here's a case where it was, you know, the work that we were doing coding and digital electronics led to them, using another digital tool, the iPads, to learn, you know, to use Duolingo. So that's a good thing, right? We're not going to say you shouldn't use an iPad to learn English, right? We'd never say that because here it was. It was motivating them. And in a lot of cases, kids are more motivated to use the computer or a mobile device to learn something. Uh, if Or if they, they're more motivated to learn something when they can use a mobile device or a digital technology to do that learning. So... You know, I think it's important to that integration of the two and not a separation. And the other piece is, you know, I want to say is, you know, I'm working in this area of STEM 
making um, and, and digital technologies since really, you know, I mean, my first, my first uh, communications lab I had in 1987 in a school, we had a, a, an Apple laser printer and I think three or four Apple Macs. No one else had that. We had this thing called computer eyes, which was like the first camera for a uh, computer where it would scan, you know, we'd stand in front of the camera and it would reprint this, create a photo by printing line by line to create a photo, right? So that's going back, oh, geez, I hate to say it, over 30 years. Uh, and all the while, there's been this hand-wringing about the lack of diversity, the lack of opportunity for minority and underrepresented students or underrepresented genders in all of these fields of STEM and technology. And it's still being said today, no different than it was 30 years ago. You know, we're just completely failed at trying to... Uh, recruit or trying to interest uh, students in pursuing these careers in STEM. And I think that's where the makerspace can be something, have a significant impact because where nothing else has worked, okay? Yes, there are some very good STEM schools, no question about it. There are some very good magnet charter schools that have embraced STEM and created new models for STEM learning. I mean, you have, uh, I heard your episode with uh, one of the teachers who was from High Tech High you know, a really excellent example, a great STEM school, but that's the minority. That's the exception. That's not the rule. And I think makerspaces can become more of a, um, a more of the rule, more of a majority opportunity to introduce these new technologies. Like I, I, the example I gave where a high school senior had never had an experience with digital technology. So how is that student even going to know there's a, a whole career opportunity in digital technologies, whether it's robotics or electronics or you know, you do a search on Indeed, you'll find numerous positions in those fields. Had, student had no experience of that. How is he supposed to know that's a career opportunity? And it wasn't being taught, obviously, in a science or math class. Um, so I think the makerspace can become a real center for uh, uh, kind of opening up the world of uh, high tech and STEM to students other than their traditional classrooms, you know, the traditional academic subject areas. Well, Michael, we've really enjoyed this conversation. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So we want to make sure we hit our final question that we ask all of our interviewees. So what three things would you recommend to our educators listening or parents to help them bring creativity into their classroom or homes? Yes, I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, and uh, given my experience, you know, with makerspaces, with budgets and, and programs, um, you know, I've, I've created makerspaces with a budget of $20,000 and I've created makerspaces with helped create makerspaces with a budget of $300,000. But even if I had $500, I could create a space. All right. And, and I think uh, we did, you did reference somebody who's talking about the environment and, and, and the work in Africa around the environment of learning. And actually, it's the Italians who uh, some have come up with this idea that the environment is the third teacher. Right. So the environment as the third teacher, well, you can create a maker environment, whether it's a corner of your room, a table, a even a desk, literally. Uh, for, you know, what using no budget, right? Just find found materials, scavenged materials, recycled materials, found tools. I mean, you can get very inexpensive tools, non-dangerous tools, 
but um, very inexpensive. So I would say, you know, work with what you have, number one, in terms of the budget, right? Work with the budget you have. If you're lucky enough, if you're fortunate enough, if you're endowed enough to have a $300,000 budget, then obviously you're going to have an incredible makerspace. Uh, but if all you have is $500, and I, I, you know, I raised maybe three, dollars $4,000 on uh, GoFundMe for my space in Mexico when I first started, um, you work with that. You can buy a $200 3D printer versus a $2,000 3D printer. Now, yes, the $2,000 3D printer is awful nice, but the $200 printer can print just as well. So work with the budget you have is number one, uh, whatever that budget may be. And don't underestimate the, uh, the possibility of building a budget and reaching out to parents or organizations that, that I referenced that uh, first uh, communications lab I did back in the 80s. I got a $10,000 grant from a local company that no one in the school knew had a uh, like a philanthropical arm that funded projects like that in the community. And I just reached out to them and ended up with $10,000. So, uh, so work with what you have in terms of budget, work with the space you have. If you're fortunate enough to have, again, a dedicated space, um, you know, that you can use and, and convert or, or build into a makerspace, like we did in Mexico. Originally, my space in Mexico was not a dedicated space. I just started using like a common area. And we just started doing robot activities and whatever we could safely do within that space. We now have a dedicated space because the need was, you know, it was, it was obvious we needed a space that we could grow into and do more with. So we got a dedicated space. But if all you have is a corner of the room, I mean, elementary teachers are very familiar with creating centers of learning, right? Centers of learning for different types of activities, different types of experiences. You can create a maker spent center. I mean, there's, you know, the maker movement is very diverse. I mean, there are maker spaces within libraries. There are maker spaces within technical programs and in, in the quote tech wing of the school where there might be full, you know, full, uh, fully equipped shops and uh, opportunity to have a very robust makerspace like that. Uh, but it, again, it could also be a desk. And then the other thing, finally, it's kind of around curriculum is, you know, start where you are. And this is something um, that, um, you know, I've, I've used that kind of concept a lot in some of the work I've done, in, especially in elementary schools. Like, how do we get teachers to integrate making into the curriculum? So my first question would always be, what is what type of project are you doing now? Do you have a project that you do with students now that could incorporate more making opportunities? So maybe they're not making a physical prototype of some sort or physical object or artifact, but they could if you incorporated and given the opportunity of some other additional resources. And so that's, you know, that's where I said like, okay, you know, let's start with where you are and we're not introducing a new domain. We're not trying to force you to introduce a new curriculum but what look at the curriculum you have and how you can incorporate it and i think you know those three things working like that i mean recently another uh, elementary school a k-8 school that i've worked with we took a science room it was a stem room that was way overcrowded very unappealing space uh, very not functional really functioning even as, as it was intended to and we turned it into a makerspace that has become like the center of vibrant learning in the school. It's really just ignited so much interest and so much excitement in the kids. So the, all those things, I think, are, anyone can incorporate making 
you know, wherever they are. And then the same would go for an informal environment, you know, looking at your spaces, looking at your budgets, looking at your opportunities with, that you have currently and how you can start to integrate. So, Michael, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights on the Maker Movement. And to you listening, if you've enjoyed this show and you think that there's a lot of information that you can potentially give to a member of your school community, perhaps a teacher that is in charge of the Maker Space, or perhaps your school is looking to create a Maker Space, we ask you to simply forward a link to this episode to that individual. My name is Dr. Matthew Werwood. And my name is Dr. Cindy Burnett. This episode was sponsored by Creativity in Education and dadsforcreativity.com. 